Welcome to the Start of Grind podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you got to be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From startup grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a startup grind. This podcast is brought to you by HBX, Harvard Business School's digital learning initiative. Introducing Disruptive Strategy with Clayton Christensen, an engaging and interactive online learning experience from Harvard Business School's HBX. Learn to create winning strategies to position your organization for long-term success by applying proven disruption and innovation theories from world-renowned strategist Clay Christensen. Disruptive Strategy encourages active learning and peer collaboration and requires a commitment of approximately 30 hours over six weeks. Applications are being accepted for upcoming cohorts in August and October. To learn more, visit DisruptiveStrategy.org. Hey there, and welcome to Wednesday's episode of the Startup Crime Podcast. Today, we have a special interview from our global conference with Sebastian Thrun, co-founder and CEO of Udacity and former head of Google X. Sebastian Thrun is also a former Google Fellow and VP and a research professor at Stanford University. He has published over 370 scientific papers and 11 books and is a member of the National Academy of Engineering. Sebastian works on revolutionizing all of transportation, education, homes, and medical care. Fast Company named Thrun one of the fifth most creative people in business and foreign policy touted him as global thinker number four. At Stanford, Sebastian led the Thrun Lab in creating Google Street View. Then at Google, Sebastian founded Google X. He leveraged X to launch projects like the self-driving car, Google Glass, indoor navigation, Google Brain, Project Win, and Project Loon. At Udacity, his vision is to democratize higher education. Udacity stands for We Are Audacious For You, The Student. His team created the notion of nano degrees, which empowers people from all traits and ages to find employment in the tech industry. Let's listen into this remarkable thinker interviewed by legendary investor George Zachary at Startup Grind's Global Conference. Okay, this is very bizarre, because when I saw Sebastian outside, I could not believe that we were actually color-coordinated. We did not plan this at all. Not everywhere. Yeah. So, I've known Sebastian for, I think it's, uh, it's been, what, 10 to 12 years? Yeah, I think you were the only VC that didn't want to fund my company. Yeah. <laughs> and then we sold it to Google. And that, and that company originally was doing what? Uh, ended up doing Street View at Google. That's right. And we were lucky to sell because 2007 came along and it wasn't a, a pretty year. Yeah. So... So that was Street View, and so you're working on that. And then, but the roots of, of you, I mean, when I met you, you were a professor at Stanford. Yeah, I was teaching computer science at Stanford and um, had grad students that I love and adore, and I love Stanford. But uh, at some point, I got to the point where I wanted to do something else. So I started the company, sold it to Google, and then spent time at Google and more on sabbatical. And I got drawn in to do innovation at Google, and then Larry and Sergey and Eric trusted me with Google X, which I founded, and I got to play, uh, build things like self-driving cars and Google Glass and, and learn a lot about life and so on. Yeah, which was, I mean, these are like incredible things to have been working on. I just remember being incredibly impressed that you were doing that. And while, we were, while you were doing that, I remember we would always get together and talk about how the world of education could be better. 
Yeah, I, I got to this point. I mean, especially talking to Larry Page more than anybody else, who's a, a really big thinker, where you can't just say, I'm going to build a, a faster photo app or something like this. Uh, I got to think, like, what is something that really needs some really big innovation? Like, what really sucks in the world? And there's many <laughs> things that suck in the world. But one happened to be my own trait of, of education. Um, I woke up to this when I listened to a guy named Sal Khan, who was running Khan Academy, and he had, like, 50 million students, and I had 200 students at Stanford, and decided to take a class online, artificial intelligence, which some of you might have heard about or taken. And um, we got 160,000 students, which is like 10 times as many students as Stanford had for one class. And that kind of opened my eyes a little bit that there's an opportunity uh, to do something in the educational space that would really change the world for many, many people. Yeah, and I, I thought that was incredibly exciting because my undergrad experience was at MIT, which I actually hated, because the ability to learn new things was basically built on these individual courses. So learning new bits of up-to-date knowledge was not easy to do. Um, you could learn some very fundamental structural knowledge, which I thought was great, but I always wanted to learn new things. So Sebastian and I started talking about that before the AI course. Yeah. And you know, we talked about kind of this atomization of knowledge. And yeah. then you know, that 160,000 student test was so incredibly successful. I was like, Sebastian, this is incredible. Like, and I think you were incredibly surprised by the, by the response and how quick it was. Yeah, I mean, it was a, this is now four years ago, it was a, a graduate class on artificial intelligence. We expected perhaps 500 to 1,000 students signing up because that's about the number of people at the time that started AI at the graduate level. And um, with 160,000, it was only 160,000 because Stanford got cold feet and wanted to, to shut it off before it was too many because of litigation risks. Don't even know why. But um, the other thing that kind of blew my mind is the people, like the stories. Like we got email from people. At some point, I sent everybody who fell behind in homework assignment an email. So I sent 40,000 personal email to people who are falling behind. Um, and I got 40,000 excuses. And, and one guy was a fighter in Afghanistan who was during the day fighting our war and night would infiltrate war zones to go to some sort of a terminal to get his homework done in time. Another person was, was a mother raising two children and she was at home with a teething infant. And she did this just to prove to herself that she's worth something. And, and when this all was said and done, I taught the exact same class on Stanford's campus with 200 students and had my 160 and 150, 120, 80,000 students online. They kind of dwindled off very fast. And 23,000 made it to the end, so we stacked ranked them. And we compared the world of smartness that was in my online class to these extremely well-chosen Stanford students. The top 412 students were not at Stanford. So the best performing Stanford student were number 413. It was really an interesting data point. Yeah, it was, it was you know, as an investor and uh, as a person, first off, this was incredibly inspirational. My family is from the mountains of Greece, and I was the first person in my family tree to go to college. So I found this, like, like I was just like, I want to be involved, not just because it was Sebastian, but because this was something that could change the world. And, you know, we now had a data point and multiple data points that this was starting to change the world already, and I had my belief and trust that Sebastian was, could see and have a vision and would be able to pull this off. 
he has more trust in me than I have trust in me, too, but just for the record. He's always said this, which is so funny. Um, <laughs> no, it's actually, I mean, as a college professor um, <laughs> moving into a managerial position at Google and then to a startup company was really interesting because I, I, I felt pretty secure as a college professor, had tenure and all this stuff. Um, and as all of you know, running a startup is a, is a roller coaster. There's many days when you're just on cloud nine and then a minute later something happens and you're down here smashed to the bottom you feel your company is falling apart. Um, so that was really my daily routine for, for quite a while until we got more firm and more, we found out our business model and so on. Yeah, but you went through it. Yeah, it's fun. It's, uh, I mean, in hindsight, from the outside, it always looks very streamlined and from the inside, it looks very chaotic. Um, but what kept my team together and me is really we had this very strong vision. And the vision is a, is a yeah. social vision. It's a vision that if we can, can bring education to everybody, if we can truly democratize education, then we can double the world's GDP. And that sounds arrogant, but it's great to think that because if you're waking up in the morning and thinking you haven't quite doubled the world's GDP yet, but you can accomplish that uh, with a startup company in Silicon Valley, um, that, that keeps, us, keeps us going, keeps us really working on, on something really important. Yeah, and, and so what, what do you, you know, you've done a whole bunch of awesome things, like self-driving car, you yeah. know, all the other things. So Google Glass. Yeah, Google Glass. Loon. Yeah. Yeah. We could just list a whole bunch of things going but, back into the, going back till when I first met you. Okay. And so what led you to actually start Udacity and build it as a company? So to me, the moment we had this data point about, that I got quoted about 160,000 students taking my class, it became clear to me how imbalanced the world is, like how important education is. I think education is future-proof. We need more of it, not less. There's no question because the world is moving faster. But also how the access situation was so bad, how some people would get it and have access to Stanford and MIT, which I think is a good school. Um, <laughs> And, and many, many people didn't. Like all of, if you take all of China and, and India and the Arab-speaking world and, and Africa, you have more than the half of the world's population. And in that space, among the top 200 universities, you only find two names, right? So Tsinghua and Beijing. Um, so I felt, and, and they're all like brick and mortar and expensive and hard to get to and, and so on. So I, I had this vision that we could, just, we could just do that. And that trumped, in some sense, the importance of the self-driving car. I mean, I'm, I'm very pleased to see the self-driving car to be such an active thing right now. Even Obama talks about it. When we did it, everybody laughed about it, and people told me I'm destroying my academic career by working on cars. Um, so it looked really, really small and impossible in the beginning, and now it seems very real. But that kind of is on its own um, auto mode, auto drive mode, and it, it's moving forward really well. Um, education is still at a mode where I think um, we need to do a lot of basic innovation and, and, and really get out to people to make people build up the... The, the trust and, and the belief that it can actually be done and, and they can actually graduate from a place like Udacity and, for example, get a job in the tech industry. Yeah, but what, what I noticed is that it really caught your... It, was, it came from your heart, Sebastian. Yeah, it, I mean, still, it still does every day, honestly. It's, yeah. I mean, what more beautiful thing to do than, than educate people or give them a chance to play? Um, there's a saying, if you buy a man a fish or a woman a fish, then he or she has dinner for one night but if you teach them how to fish, they have dinner for the rest of their lives. And that's yeah. so true about education. I mean, it's true everybody here. I mean, you as a, I'm actually really humbled. I know that the next Mark Zuckerberg is some in the audience, so I'm super excited to talk to you right now, uh, and all of you. 
Uh, but all of you aspire to do something great for the world, um, and it's really important. And, and I wish that the entire world would have this like, spirit of entrepreneurship and do these things. And, and most of the world is just very schematic and run by old beliefs and old structures and doesn't understand and doesn't get the tools and doesn't get the right skills. But I feel there's this huge divide between the, the great people like yourself and, and many, many other people. A quick break from Sebastian Thrun for some recent startup headlines. Morgan Stanley analyst Adam Jonas has suggested Tesla may be planning an on-demand autonomous mobility service. Jonas posits the auto industry is in an early transitional stage from privately owned vehicles to a public transport utility and also predicts Tesla could have a fleet of 5,000 vehicles on the road by 2018. Meal delivery startup Freshly has raised $21 million in a Series B round led by Insight Venture Partners with participation from Highland Capital Partners and White Star Capital. Freshly delivers prepared meals on a weekly basis, which the customer then reheats. Freshly has raised $30 million to date. Business Insider discussed Pokemon Go's development with Niantic's John Henke. The CEO explains how the firm collaborated with the Pokemon company and the logic behind Niantic's spinoff from Google. Henke also suggests the company's first game, Ingress, was intended as a proof of concept for another game maker. Let's get back to the interview with Sebastian. Yeah, and I, I was also inspired on how you saw you know, what learning, was what learning was defined as before, you know, which was my college experience, and what you saw the vision of it. Yeah. And, you know, this kind of continuous learning, not as defined by, you know, the stuff in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. But someone's ability to continuously learn and have a sense of enjoyment and that was really inspirational to me. Yeah, as well. I mean, our students, our student body is growing very, very rapidly. Um, they all love this idea of lifelong learning. They're blended into busy lives. We actually, we have an, an entrepreneurship, not a degree, taught by some of the best people at Google and other places that might be relevant for people here, um, where, where people really get the latest and best from the best companies in the world, Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, Google, Cloudera, and many others. And the, the basic theme is that learning should be as, as habitual um, as brushing your teeth. You should do it twi do twice a day for at least 10 minutes. Uh, and it should be part of your normal life. In fact, work and education, these things have to blend. And I'm absolutely convinced it's going to happen. Whether my company succeeds or not, um, we will get to this point where learning becomes part of the, the living fabric. And when that happens, it has to be mobile, it has to be intelligent, it has to be smart, it has to be affordable, and all these other things. So that's basically what we do. It's actually very doable. Turns out the math is really simple. I mean, when we taught our AI class, we paid per student 60 cents in total. Um, and, and now a student costs us in the order of 200 bucks a month. Um, we're now at the point where when students graduate, we give them half the tuition back. We have a very new program, which is only for very specific things like Android and iOS and data science, where if students graduate and they can't find a job and we can't help them find a job, we give them the total tuition back. So, so education is now back to free. Um, it's really interesting. Um, so we, we really go out and, and try to make this entire thing, change the entire economics of education and, and change the rate of education. So, so if you think about this on a global perspective, and there's lots of people who are struggling to find jobs at different levels, what's the opportunity just on a global level to help those people? Because there's lots of lower skilled People. Yes, so, so um, for un I mean, among the people that we attract, we get these totally awesome students from all around the world. And we have about a thousand or so students right now in our network wishing to work for startup companies that are completely capable to build mobile apps or do big data science. 
In fact, um, if anybody here is looking for people in that field, talents at udacity.com is the email address, and we're going to get access to our portal, and you can browse to these people free of charge and hire whoever you want. Um, that is actually mind-blowing because I think that the talent is, is so much more global than we think it is. Um, just because we grew up in California and we went to Stanford doesn't mean we are any better than all these people in Russia and all these people in, in, in Africa that, that are equally smart and with the right education have equal power to do interesting things. So one of the things we're doing is to really empower the world of smart people to find work in places like Silicon Valley, even as a remote worker or as a physical worker. But even if you go down the totem pole to answer your question, George, about the less talented people, I think everybody can enhance their ceiling. Everybody is capable of moving from here to here. And it might take work, but people are inspired. I mean, I don't think people in places like the Middle East fight crazy battles because that's what they're really meant to do. Um, I think there's so many more opportunities. If you give people opportunities, so many more possibilities to take people up a level forever they are, and that, that I think we can do so much good with reaching out to people and educating them. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's very exciting. So what's, so, you know, r right now we're, as a company, focusing on technology in terms of the nanodegree space. Yeah. And the world's jobs are incredibly broad. Where to go next besides technology? Just in, you know, well, in general. Well, my company, Udacity, does focus on technology. Um, we, are, we are doing, as George mentioned, the nanodegree program, which is a short degree. And we bring people into new jobs. We have this, I guess, now we have no companies that hire my people without interviewing, which is kind of nice. Um, but beyond this, I think um, tech is a boutique space. It's a small space. It's the big for all of us. But the rest of the world and nursing is actually bigger than tech and medicals. Um, but all these fields, I think, have an opportunity to, to develop some more lifelong education and more bleeding edge. In all these fields, I think colleges will eventually be falling behind because they have a hard time innovating and, 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 and changing their content and, and becoming up to date. Um, in all these fields, I think eventually simulation, like there's now great surgical simulation tool that can teach you sim uh, surgery better than a physical corpus. Um, all these fields will be disrupted by, I think, new technologies. You know, I was very surprised. Um, I'm very surprised by this entire kind of presidential primary and race going on. But uh, Rubio actually even mentioned Udacity and a competitor. And I was surprised that he even knew what was going on in the world of technology. But that's a separate issue. So, he has good people. Well, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly the political establishment and people that want to be in it know that there's a huge jobs issue and they're appealing to it, but they also know that technology is a way to enable people to get jobs. So learning is part of getting jobs, which has been known for a long time. So how will this increase the, the competitiveness of the US as well as other countries? And then how will the US and other countries deal with this issue? Because I think this will become um, a cross-country issue. Yeah, it's many I mean, this of these is, technologies. This is a little bit outside the, the normal yeah, discussion that we're having. I, I normally don't comment on US elections. I leave it for others to do. But um, generally, I mean, many of the technologies you all are working on are global. And one of the beautiful things happening right now is it's unique in the history of the world that a team of 50 people could start something like WhatsApp and reach the entire world. 
that scale is unique, and that scale has also brought unique wealth to Silicon Valley. There's no accumulation of wealth that parallels what happened in Silicon Valley right now. Um, so to me, what it really means is it's eventually going to um, level statehood. It means that where you're born and what you do will be less and less important, and that's extremely exciting. I think Google has done this. Any U.S. senator has as much access on information on Google as, as you and I have, as, as many homeless people, as long as they have a smartphone. Um, and the same would happen in places like education. Yeah. So, so as the world's becoming this on-demand driven economy, um, not, you know, in many different ways, um, basically Udacity can feed into it, as well as not just Udacity, but the entire world of online learning can basically yeah. play into it. We actually, and, um, we, we became a bit like a, like a Lyft or like an, like an Uber because we found that, that when we have Udacity is a service company, so we do a lot of like reviews and mentoring and stuff like this, and, and uh, grading and, and review your, your CV and help you get a job. These are like one-on-one -on -one services. Um, we found that by having these service people like all around the world in an Uber-like model, the same way Uber drivers are like regular people driving for Uber, these are regular people who in the evening grade homework assignments for us. We were able to, to get enormous quality of, of grading on, and, and, and mentoring at a fraction of the cost at a much higher speed. So for all of you who are interested in this, I'm actually a super big fan of the in-demand economy. I've actually became an Uber driver myself just to try it out, which I loved. Highly recommend anybody become an Uber driver for an afternoon. It's one of the best things you do in your life if it's just for the party conversation that ensue. Um, mm. But I think um, the entire notion of like hiring people and firing is just really complicated. And um, one of the things we do at Udacity now is we have lots of like over 1,000 grads that are looking for, for work right now be helping startup companies using them without hiring them. Just like use them for a short time, try them out, try something else. Um, and maybe build, build products around this. We have like built dozens of apps now in, in, in little experiment we're running on the side uh, to bring our students into startup companies and help them build an iPhone app, an Android app. Again, talents at udacity.com. Um, and that I think is gonna be a future model. I think in the future, like these, these lifelong things like hiring people and firing, I think will yield towards much more fluent and fast model as much as long letters have yielded to 140 characters. Yeah. So what do you think the structure of, of companies looks like in the future? You know, if, if you've got online learning that creates these online opportunities, what, do, what, do, what does the, the structure of companies look like, both small and large? Boy, I wish I had a, a crystal ball. Um, but to me, it seems that people will switch much more frequently in the future than in the past. So it used to be you had a lifetime job, and I mean, generations ago, your job was your dad's job, right? Or your mother's job. And, and now, the average tenure right now is, is about four years in the United States. 26% of us already work on demand in the United States. And that's gonna shrink, so people have multiple jobs at the same time. And, and you might have multiple jobs at the same time. And that's good, it gives us a chance to improve much faster and to learn much faster. So we're gonna get faster and faster. And I think it's very exciting. So what's this mean for your Udacity as the next step? Well, for us, it's going to be good. Um, I want to uh, mention one thing here for everybody to know. Uh, we, we do have a fairly successful entrepreneurship degree. So if you care about learning from the best of the best how to start a company, um, hopefully come to us. Uh, and if you sign up between now and Sunday, there's a special code that's being tweeted around, a special coupon code. You can get half off in the first month, and I hope you like it. Um, but what it really means, I think, with, a, with an accelerating world, um, that there'll be more and more chances for people to do something new and something interesting. So in the past, if I wanted to become a cab driver, I had to take this long exam and pay my fee, get a medallion. 
like to even get a mortgage for medallion. It was really hard. Today I go to Uber, I show them my car, I sign up, and the next minute I'm a cab driver. Uh, same is true for a hotel operator. It, it takes me like five minutes to sign up and become a hotel operator through Airbnb. Or for an educator, you come to us and sign up and become an educator uh, for us, work for us, and make good money. The best people that work for me on that mode made more than $20,000 a month. It's actually quite well paid. Um, so I think that, that mode, I think, is going to replace the, the classical mode where we think of people in, in vertical silos where people have to take one drop in a lifetime. Because that is very constraining. Like if you as a 17-year-old decide you want to be a medical doctor and when you're finally done at age 29, you figure out you don't like it, you know, it's tough luck. I think in the future, you can probably be a medical doctor in a week and just try it out and see how it fits you. Yeah. I actually believe that. <laughs> Sebastian, all I can say is thank you. And I'm very proud to be an investor. Oh, and you, if you know any of these uh, doctors, uh, I don't want to be the first person. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by HBX, Harvard Business School's digital learning initiative. Introducing disruptive strategy with Clayton Christensen and engaging an interactive online learning experience from Harvard Business School's HBX. Learn to create winning strategies to position your organization for long-term success by applying proven disruption and innovation theories from world-renowned strategist Clay Christensen. Disruptive strategy encourages active learning and peer collaboration and requires a commitment of approximately 30 hours over six weeks. Applications are being accepted for upcoming cohorts in August and October. To learn more, visit disruptivestrategy.org.